Do you spend hours in your head thinking about something that happened, could have happened, or might happen? Do you ask others what to do so you don't make a mistake? Welcome to the Playing It Safe podcast. I am Dr. Z, your host. I am a clinical psychologist, an author, and a person that is super passionate about sharing with you science-based skills to overcome any type of fear-based struggles. Who doesn't experience fear? Who doesn't play it safe? In this show, we will discuss how fear-based reactions happen in day-to-day life, how playing it safe behaviors look like, sound like, and feel like, how you can put into action solid tips from behavioral science to get unstuck from worries, fears, obsessions, and anxieties, and how you can start doing what works, what matters, and what you care about. Behavioral science doesn't have to be boring. Thanks for listening, and let's get started. Hello, everybody. Hope you're having a good week so far. Today, I am super excited to share with you a conversation I had with Jill Stoddard. Jill Stoddard is a clinical psychologist. She's a TEDx speaker, and she's the author of two books. Her first book is called The Big Book of Act Metaphors, and it's a book written for clinicians. So if you are a mental health provider and you are interested in learning and practicing experiential exercises and metaphors based on acceptance and commitment therapy, you may want to check this book. Jill's second book is called Be Mighty, and this is an application of acceptance and commitment therapy principles for women struggling with anxiety, stress, and worry. In this conversation, you are going to listen how Jill handles her fears of not being an expert on a given topic, how she practices self-compassion, and how she did her own exposure exercises when facing fears. If you like this conversation and find it useful, and if you feel generous, please write us a review. A review may mean nothing to you, but when you are creating different resources, a review helps with making a podcast, a book, or a newsletter available to others. Thank you so much for your consideration, and let's jump into the interview. Hello, Jill, and welcome to the Playing It Safe podcast. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I know you have been very busy the last couple of years publishing books and hosting also the podcast Psychologies of the Clock. So I am excited that we can chat a little bit. The podcast focuses on playing it safe behaviors that are academically known as safety-seeking behaviors. And they are basically all the things that we do to manage fears, worries, anxieties. Sometimes we may postpone activities. Sometimes we avoid situations Sometimes we try to have the perfect outcome. Sometimes we replay in our mind a particular situation. So there are so many ways in which we play it safe as a way to manage our anxieties. Today, I am hoping that we can chat a little bit about how it has been for you to handle all the worries and anxieties that are coming our way, given the time that we're living. Yeah, I think worries in particular are just 
quite rampant right now. I mean, I find my own mind is much busier than it has been, you know, than it was prior to the pandemic. And, you know, so I think I come at it a couple of different ways. One is to try to start from a place of self-compassion, you know, remembering that this is a crazy time and it's normal to be worrying. Um, and, and, and I guess the same goes, you asked about anxiety too, you know, the same goes for anxiety is, um, and, and this is what I talk to my clients about too, is typically anxiety, when we're talking about anxiety disorders or like someone coming to therapy, it's a false alarm. It's like worrying and feeling anxious about things that might happen, but aren't really happening. And right now there's a true threat. And so I'm trying to be gentle with myself rather than, you know, I'll find myself getting into that, like, you should know better, you should be better, you know, you're an anxiety specialist, as if I'm supposed to be above it all. So I try to come at it with some self-compassion, like, hold on a minute here. You know, this is a crazy time and your body is doing what it was designed to do by telling you, you know, there is a threat out there, right? Because there is. And I sometimes think, you know, the people who are not practicing social distancing and wearing masks, like their anxiety is a little too low. They could stand to have a little more anxiety. So that's kind of the place that I try to start from. And that helps me to just sort of slow down. Um, and then I, I let myself kind of look at my worries and think about like, what do I need to pay attention to here? I think many times it's easy to label our anxieties and worries as bad or as things that we shouldn't feel. But we forget that they can be very adaptive because they are signaling something that we have to pay attention to. So I think an important takeaway message is that feeling anxious is not necessarily a bad thing. It's uncomfortable, yes, and yet it could also drive very effective behaviors. Yeah. For example, if I go to a party and I see that my friend is drinking one martini after another martini, and at the end of the gathering comes and offers me a ride, I may feel uncomfortable. I may feel worried about my friend's capacity to drive. I may feel worried about his safety and my safety. So I may say, thank you so much, but I don't think you can drive and I think I'm going to take a cab. So that's just one example to show how these fears can be very adaptive and they can keep us safe. Now, Jill, you mentioned that when feeling anxious, you also practice some form of self-compassion. So how does it look like? If I will be next to you, what will I see you doing? Yeah. Yeah, it's for me, it's become just kind of a quick internal process. You know, it's sort of like a taking one mindful breath to slow down, uh, you know, kind of get myself grounded in that moment and to just say, this is hard. Mm-hmm. And, and it can be just as much as that for, for me, that works like that, just that reminder of like, this is hard. And, you know, and often there will, that will be coupled with like, we're in this together. You know, the common humanity is like, this is hard for all of us because I find that sometimes being hard on myself 
comes with, um, it comes with a comparison. Like if I'm a bad mom, it's in comparison to everyone else being a good mom or a better mom, I should say. So I think it's just that breath. This is hard. Everybody is struggling. You'll figure this out. You always do. You know, that's become my mantra for years. The, you know, where I notice where I tend to get stressed, it's around um, too much to do and not enough time to do it, even way before the pandemic or anything. Mm -hmm. And what I've found is a self-compassion practice for me is just to say, you'll get it done. You always do. Mm -hmm. Right? Like being a bit of a cheerleader to myself. And I know that's true. You know, Mm -hmm. if it weren't true, I wouldn't have finished graduate school. (laughs) (laughs) or you wouldn't be raising two kids or you wouldn't be running your practice or you wouldn't be hosting a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned that you have been using this mantra for years. I'm curious, how was for you to handle fears and worries and anxieties maybe 20 years ago? Oh my gosh, that's such an interesting question. So 20 years ago is when I was starting graduate school. So I didn't know any of this stuff yet. (laughs) And what's funny, I think it's kind of funny looking back, it wasn't funny at the time, but graduate school was very, very stressful, right? I mean, you're working 12 hours a day, seven days a week, just crazy. And my classmates would have a lot of anxiety and they would express their anxiety as people with emotional intelligence (laughs) tend to do. And I would really be quite, you know, befuddled. Like, I don't understand what you guys are feeling so anxious about. And I'm smiling and like, I feel fine. And do you know that I developed absolutely crushing, debilitating migraines in graduate school? I mean, I was in the ER. I had them every single month. I was in the ER several times, and as soon as I graduated, they went away. I now I still get them occasionally, but it was those years of graduate school. And it was this like people on the podcast can't see me, but I'm like smacking my forehead, like, well, duh. So I was handling all of my emotion, not just anxiety, but like all the difficult stuff that shows up. Mm -hmm. by completely shoving it down and pushing it down. And my body was saying, yeah, no, it doesn't work that way. It's going to find a way out one way or the other. (laughs) It's hard for our bodies to hide how we're living life. In one way or another way, I think our bodies reflect what's going on with us. How did you make that shift from pushing down emotions, pushing down worries, pushing down anxieties to develop this new relationship with them. At the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned that these days you check what you're feeling, you check what you have to pay attention to. So how was that shift from pushing down, from suppressing to noticing? How did it happen? I mean, I think it's just, it's been an ongoing process of unfolding. And in graduate school, my training was very heavy cognitive behavioral therapy training and then shifted over time to more act. But at the time when I first started learning exposure, I had this thought, you know, if I'm going to be asking clients to do the hardest thing, you know, to face their biggest fears, I have to be willing to do the same. And the very first thing I did was a classmate and I 
um, I had a significant fear of, um, oh gosh, what are they called? Ferris wheels, you know, Ferris wheels. Okay. And, and it, I mean, you know, it didn't interfere with my life. You can live a perfectly functional life without Ferris wheels in it. But I had had a significant fear because I had a bad, scary experience when I was three or four years old mm -hmm. and never went on another one again. And so my classmate, Gabby, and I took a trip. Our graduate school was in Boston. And we took a trip to the Six Flags in Massachusetts. Wow. And we, we did an exposure together. And I got on that dang Ferris wheel. Wow. <laughs> and it, the anticipatory anxiety was very, very high. Mm -hmm. And then the minute we got on there and started going, I was like, oh, well, this is boring. <laughs> you know, all... <laughs> All of that, you know, all of those, those thoughts and predictions and assumptions and just that, that learning history of fear just went right out the window. And I think that was a real turning point for me so that I really started to approach not just these kinds of phobic things, which I also did. I have an issue with other people's feet. So I did some foot exposures. I have issues with scary movies. So I did some scary movie exposures. But just in general, you know, trying to learn to step out of my comfort zone and approach things, um, even when they feel scary, especially, you know, in the case of the Ferris wheel, it's not like it's so important to me mm -hmm. to be able to be on Ferris wheels. But as I evolved over time and, and learned more about acceptance and commitment therapy, it really did become about like what matters to me and what kind of person do I want to be and what kind of life do I want? And, and that means approaching things, you know, that are scary because mm -hmm. they matter. It's all about exposures, right? It's all about facing our fears. Did you have anyone coaching you on how to do those exposures or was that because of the training? Yeah, actually it was mostly my classmates. We were all learning these things together. Mm -hmm. And we were all going through a really hard time together. In fact, that's probably where I first learned common humanity without having a name for it at the time. Mm -hmm. That going through a really difficult experience together bonded us. And so it was my friend and classmate, Gabby, that went to the Ferris wheel with me. I did my foot exposures with my very good friend, Ansi. I did my scary movie exposures with my now husband, who was not my husband at the time, but my now husband, and also some of my classmates, a few of us went to go see The Ring. And that was my first scary movie in a theater. They had all just been at home before that. <laughs> and so, you know, I think with that personal journey, it was more the people who were like along for the ride with me rather than, you know, it's not, it's not that like teachers come to mind in terms of who taught you about exposure therapy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was more that, that having that like support to feel like, okay, I can do this because I have my people around me. It's beautiful that you found a group of people that you felt connected and that was your support system at the time, right? Especially because facing our fears can feel so lonely many times and it's hard work. So it's nice to have people that we can trust and people that support us. I would love to switch gears to learn more about how you handle fears and worries and anxieties as a writer. By now, you have published two books. Both of them are based on Acceptance and Commitment Therapy Act. The first book was written for clinicians and 
you put together a beautiful compilation of all the metaphors that were available at the time so we can create super cool experiences in our work with clients. And in your second book, you apply ACT principles primarily for women. So how did you handle any fear-based reaction that may have shown up when writing those books? Yeah, that's, I, I find that to be particularly relevant for the first book, the big book of ACT metaphors. I had the idea, I want to say it was like maybe around 2009 mm-hmm. and uh, the, the way that came about is I was, when I was doing ACT and I might think, oh, probably we're going to end up talking about willingness today or diffusion today. Um, and being newer to ACT, I didn't know a lot of metaphors and experiential exercises off the top of my head. I still needed to use other people's ideas. And then I would have this shelf full of books and like, oh, where was that one about the shovel again? And I just had this thought, man, wouldn't it be nice if there were just one book on the shelf that I could pull off and open up to acceptance and have a bunch of stuff to choose from? And I thought, well, I could write that book. You know, and the minute I had that idea, I thought, no, you can't. Who do you think you are? You don't write books. You're not an act expert. You know, I mean, just like you're saying that inner critic came, inner critic came in very loudly saying, who do you think you are? And I don't know exactly what it was that made me take that step forward other than I knew it was a good idea and Mm -hmm. that even if I wasn't the one to write it, someone should. Mm -hmm. And so I reached out to a mentor of mine who I trusted to either say, this is a terrible idea or you're not the one to write it or yeah, let's do this. And her name is Nilu Afari, who's my co-author. And she was a former supervisor and now colleague and Anyway, I reached out and said, what do you think? And she thought it was a great idea. And, you know, she, she, I, she was a former student of Steve Hayes. So she ran it by him mm-hmm. and he said, yes, great idea. And anyway, and so then it happened. Nice. And I think doing that, doing it that one time mm-hmm. then makes it easier the next time, just like, you know, one Ferris wheel makes the next Ferris wheel easier. <laughs> and so it, it doesn't mean that the thoughts went away. There was still that, like with Be Mighty, the thoughts were, you're not an expert in women's issues. Mm-hmm. You can't write a book for women. Who do you think you are? Right. So it was still there, but I was, I love to write. Um, mm-hmm. And it just felt really, really important to me. And so I was, you know, willing to do it and take all that imposter syndrome along for the ride with me. So how did you handle those thoughts? What do I know about women's issues? I am not an expert in women's issues. Well, I think it was probably just trying to have kind of a growth mindset. I don't have to convince myself that I am an expert in women's issues because I'm not, but that can be okay. Like that doesn't have to be a thing that stops me. Women's issues are incredibly important to me. I am passionate about women's issues and therefore I can learn what I need to learn to be able to put something out into the world that will help women. I can do this without being the world's biggest know-it-all about, you know, feminism or sexism or, you know, I can, it's something it's, it, that I care about and so I can learn 
and I can put something out there. And what's interesting is that the most common positive feedback I get about the book is I, people will say, I didn't feel like you were some expert up on some, you know, pedestal talking down at me, telling me how I have to fix my life. I felt like I was sitting next to a friend having a cup of coffee. I don't know if you have read Malcolm Gladwell, but in his book, David and Goliath, he writes a lot about how sometimes our disadvantages can be our advantages and how our advantages can be our disadvantages. So when thinking about your book, Be Mighty, I can see how not being an expert on women's issues was an advantage because then you were able to communicate to a larger audience in a very different and unique way. By the way, how did you decide to write Be Mighty? Um, well, my initial idea was that I knew I wanted to write an ACT self-help book. So the big book of ACT metaphors was for ACT therapists. Yeah. And I knew I wanted to write an ACT book for, you know, consumers, for non-therapists. But when I pitched the idea that the title is what came to me first, Be Mighty. Mm -hmm. And when I pitched the idea, the publisher kind of taught me, I didn't realize this, but it makes sense now that the book has to be for a specific audience. Like people have to look at the book cover and know that that book is for them, right? So just this global Be Mighty book isn't going to do that. And so they suggested I write something that was a little more, had more of a niche. And at the time, that just wasn't exactly the book I wanted to write. And so we put it on the back burner. I didn't want to force it. I wanted it to come naturally. There's new stuff coming out all the time. And I read a few and nothing was like really doing it for me. You know, it just wasn't the, exactly the thing I was looking for. And I run an anxiety clinic. I'm an anxiety specialist. Um, and I thought, well, wait a minute, I can write the book. I mean, it was almost the same thing as what happened with the metaphors book. Mm -hmm. And so then I pitched that idea. Okay. I'm going to write Be Mighty for Anxiety. They said, yes, let's do it. And then another book that felt a little similar came out. And I, I, I talked to Catherine, my, my uh, editor and said, you know, is this, is this bad timing? Is this too similar? And it was her idea. She actually said, well, you know, I was thinking about doing it for women. Mm -hmm. And I swear I got goosebumps from head to toe. It was like the skies opened and, oh, I'm getting choked up just remembering it right now. And I said, yes, like, this is it. Like, this is the book that I was meant to write. I just didn't know it. And when I had the idea for Be Mighty three years before that, that wasn't the right time to write that book, mm -hmm. right? And over that course of three to four years, the whole political climate changed, you know, Time's Up and Me Too happened. There was just a lot of stuff going on that, that made me start to feel more and more passionate about women's issues and recognizing that women are diagnosed with anxiety at double the rates of men. And that's often blamed on things like, well, men just show it differently. They get irritable or they drink. And I thought, I think that really ignores the systemic issues of sexism and oppression. And that maybe this is a true statistic and women actually have more anxiety because of the context in which we live. Mm -hmm. So that so that's how it really kind of evolved into the book that it that it is today. It's incredible to step back and see how one thing led to another thing. 
you wanted to write a book, but at the beginning, the idea didn't come naturally. And you waited, and as things keep happening, then you were very clear that the book that you needed to write was a book for women. Super cool. Now, just for curiosity, do you have a specific writing schedule or do you write when you feel like writing? Oh, well, it depends on when we're talking about. So when I was writing Be Mighty and we weren't in the middle of a pandemic and my children were at school and I had some control over my schedule and my life, I actually proactively changed my whole schedule so that I was seeing clients three days a week and I saved two days a week to write. And I loved this so much. I would sit down on Mondays and Fridays from eight or nine to five o'clock and just write, 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 write. And I loved it. I was like sad when I guess four o'clock rolled around. These days that is definitely not happening. Mm -hmm. So I'm writing a lot less than I would like to be. But what I did do, because I realized a lot of time was going by where I wasn't writing much at all. I joined a writing class. So every Tuesday, Thursday morning, from nine to 10, I do a writing class. And on Tuesdays, we write for half an hour to a prompt. And what I've found is even if the prompt has nothing to do with the kinds of things I generally write about, it's just getting my, having a commitment to get my butt in the chair to get writing Mm -hmm. is helping me to produce a little bit more. And then the Thursday class is like a second draft class. So if you want to work on what you've been writing and then get feedback, we can do that. So for people who love to write, I do this. It's a podcast called Writing Class Radio and the classes are through them and I've been listening for years and it has been so incredibly helpful. It makes a difference to be accountable with others and to have a group of people that you can go back and forth about their writing and your writing. Now, what would be your advice for people who are very clear about what they need to do, what's their next step, but they are still dealing with a lot of worried thoughts in their mind? What would you recommend them to do with those worried thoughts? I think I would recommend to handle them not so differently than what I was saying I do at the, at the top of our interview, which is not all worried thoughts are necessarily quote unquote bad. Mm -hmm. You know, some of these thoughts are helpful. If you have a thought like, um, oh, geez, my rent is due tomorrow, and you care about having a roof over your head, then that's a thought you might want to pay attention to so that you get your rent paid. Or if you can't pay your rent, um, you know, that's, that's an even bigger worry and lots of anxiety. And it's still a call to action about like, what do I need to do to solve this problem? So I think it's just being thoughtful about, is this worry, thought, is this helping to move me in a direction that's important in some way? Or am I just running around like a hamster on a wheel, worrying about things that I can't control? So your example of let's take anything with politics, climate change, Black Lives Matter movement, all of these different things. I think inside those worries, there is both a call to action right? Like it, what is something that I can do if anything, right? So I'll give you an example for me. Um, as I've said a couple of times, like women's issues are very important to me and I can get really overwhelmed with how big the problem is and how slowly the wheels of change turn. And if I just worry about it, 
it, it doesn't go anywhere. And so what I choose to do is I just write blogs occasionally. And so if you have something that matters to you, there are small things that we can do that make us feel like we have some little portion of control over these issues. The rest of it, the parts you can't control, that's looking at those thoughts and learning how to let go, observing them, noticing them, and then allowing them to kind of just pass by. And it's hard to do. Um, It can be hard to do, but being thoughtful, right? About the thinking. It's like, is this helping me? What's the call to action? And the rest, I need to notice, observe, and move on and let go. I think a big takeaway message from what you just shared is that it's important and helpful to develop a new relationship with our mind, a new relationship with our thoughts, and a relationship in which we take thoughts lightly and we learn to step back and check the function, the impact, the consequences of acting on our thoughts. We're running out of time, so I have one last question. If you were to have a cup of coffee or tea with any person you want today, who will that person be and why? Oh my gosh, that's such a big question. And you know what? The name came to me instantly. And now I feel like I need to think about it more. But the first name that came to me, Oprah. Oprah has always been my hero. I look at her, you know, when I think about my own values, I think about Oprah and how, at least based on the parts of her story I know, Mm -hmm. she has overcome, you know, abuse, sexism, racism, poverty. I mean, you name it, she's had the biggest obstacles thrown her way. They have never stopped her. She uses her powers for good, at least as far as I can tell. Um, And, you know, she has struggled very publicly with her weight, but has also not let that stop her. So that's something that feels, you know, personal to me. And so I just, I really look up to her and admire her. And if I could, I I think if I sat down and had a cup of coffee with her, I'd be so stunned and starstruck. I would be mute. (laughs) <laughs> so it would probably, it probably wouldn't be the most fun coffee date, but she's the person that I would like probably most like to meet in person. I love it. I love it. Oprah is certainly an incredible woman. Jill, thank you so much for chatting with me. Thank you so much for sharing how you handle worries, fears, and anxieties. And thank you for sharing the behind the scenes of your writing process. Super cool to hear that from you. I hope we can chat again soon. I would love to. It was my pleasure. I love chatting with you. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, I will very much appreciate it if you will subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. And if you're feeling extra generous, I welcome a review on Apple Podcasts. Show notes of this episode are in the website playingwithsafe.com. Make sure to subscribe to my newsletter so you can receive more tips to stop all types of unworkable playing with safe actions. See you soon!